We turn to our first reading, which is from Psalm 2. Psalm which begins with a very relevant question. This is the word of God. Psalm 2. Perhaps we have different versions. I'm not sure I'm reading from the New International Version. And we read these words. Why do the nations conspire or rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their fetters, they say. Let us throw off their chains. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes him in his anger and terrifies him in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. How blessed are all who find their refuge in him. Amen. We come now to God's word again, to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 4, reading from verse 23. And you will recognize in this New Testament reading that the apostles in their prayer quote the psalm, psalm number 2 that we read earlier in the service. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, this is the word of God. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here he's quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate were met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. I would like to draw your attention to the second psalm that we read from earlier in the service. You will notice that it's a poem 
with four stanzas. And we're going to look at that just now. But let us take a moment to pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the lovely words of the hymn that we've been singing. And we now want to echo those words in prayer. We ask that your word would have its appointed effect as your Holy Spirit teaches us. May it enlighten the mind and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart for your great namesake. Amen. Why do the nations conspire and set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one? That's the question with which this psalm begins. Now, I don't need to tell you that we live at a time of widespread conflict in the world. I was still a teenager at school. Uh, I can't remember how many years ago, and I'd have to work it all out, but the world held its breath as Russian ships uh, advanced on America and what we call the Cuba crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis. They had placed missiles, nuclear weapons, in Cuba. President Kennedy had threatened not only to invade Cuba but to attack Russia with a nuclear strike. There was a, almost a five-week standoff, very tense time. So I remember sitting in the classroom at school and and one afternoon, the, the threat was that a nuclear bomb would go off. But thankfully, that didn't happen. There was a compromise reached, and the Russians withdrew, and the threat of nuclear war receded. And just this week, President Biden said that we're back in a similar time with a real threat of nuclear war. The peace of Europe is again fragile with this brutal war in Ukraine, over 50,000 Ukrainian lives lost, countless Russian deaths, over 13 million refugees and communities in ruins. But while we focus very much on Ukraine, and that's what our news media focus on, we should remember that over half a billion people worldwide live in conflict zones. Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Pakistan, Myanmar, South Sudan, Libya, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, and that's in North Korea. That's just to name some of them. We're living in a time of great turbulence in the world, but also a time of growing hostility in the Western world to the Christian gospel. For 1,800 years or so, this part of the world was called Christendom. It was founded on Christian values, but no longer. The church is in rapid decline in terms of those who attend on a, a Sunday. Christian values are no longer politically correct in our society. Just as an example, just less than a month ago, a Christian Union mission in University of Cambridge had to be cancelled because the Cambridge College considered that the Christian message was no longer compatible with the values of the university. Incidentally, it was a Christian foundation to begin with. So we're living at a time not only of political turbulence, but of hostility increasingly towards the gospel. And we could think of many other examples. And here Psalm 2 addresses this question, why do the nations rage and the leaders take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one? Now, you'll notice that the psalm is in poetic language because the psalmist, through poetry, is communicating truths that are of eternal relevance. 
relevant to the political world of 1000 BC when King David was that anointed one of of verse 6, relevant 1000 years later in Jerusalem as we read in the New Testament reading at the coming of Christ and his death and the crucifixion in in, in Jerusalem, Peter uses these very words to explain what was going on. And you'll also notice in this psalm at least three titles that later on are embraced by Jesus. God's king, God's anointed one, my son. You remember in the New Testament, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him, listen to him. But here's a word that is also relevant in our turbulent 2022. Let's look at it in three very simple sections. First of all, the psalmist speaks about the state of the world. Then he looks at the scene in heaven. And then he tells us what our proper response ought to be. The state of the world, why do the nations conspire? The word literally is to rage. It indicates this turbulence in human affairs. Is it not a a very remarkable thing that we're living in the most educated and technologically sophisticated generation in history? And yet we live in a world of constant turmoil. The prophet Isaiah puts it very vividly. He said, it is like the troubled sea which cannot rest. I grew up near the coast in Larne. And I still love to go down there with my grandchildren and walk along the coast. And so often it's as calm as a mill pond. But there's always a turbulence underneath the surface. There's always that churning beneath. And every now and then it erupts and throws the dirt and the mire onto the the towpath and onto the surface. And similarly, there's a turmoil in our society, not only in the nations of the world, but here on this island. On average, we have two murders a week on this island. Two million prescriptions last year for antidepressants were prescribed on this island. Over 500 uh, deaths a year from suicide, the the main cause of death of 15 to 25-year-olds. Not just statistics, but stories of pain and heartbreak and misery for families. We live in a society in turmoil. But notice how the psalmist puts it, it's not only in turmoil, but it's a society marked by futility. The nations, he tells us, plot in vain. All their striving seems to come to nothing. All their aspirations for a better world never work out. They can't get their act together. I remember vividly as a student in Belfast in the 1960s studying mainly the sciences, mainly biology. We were told that we were about to leave behind the dark ages of religion and superstition and we were going through science and technology to move to a golden age when we had the capacity to rid the world of disease and illness and war. I've often thought of those lectures and I've kept some of those textbooks just as a testament to human arrogance and folly. The reality has been that the 20th century was the most violent century in history. More people died in conflicts in the 20th century than the previous 19 put together. And the 21st century has every uh, promise of being just the same. More people go to bed hungry today than ever in the history of the human race. Almost a billion people. Not because there's not enough food but through human greed and corruption. 
There are more displaced people in the world today than at any time in history. Prior to the Ukraine war, it was estimated around 82 million. It's now well over 100 million with nowhere to call home, nowhere to lay their head. The slave trade was abolished centuries ago. But according to the United Nations, over 40 million people in Europe live in some form of slavery. And with all our science and technology, we're driving iconic species to extinction. We're filling the oceans with our waste. We're destroying irreplaceable resources. We're turning vast areas into desert and bequeathing to future generations a planet that is less healthy and less sustainable. All our great hopes for a better world seem, somehow seem to come to nothing. When I was a student, there was a famous philosopher called Bertrand Russell who wrote a book, Why I Am Not a Christian. But towards the end of his life, he wrote another book. And in that book, he admitted the futility of his position, of his beliefs. He was an atheist, of course, and this is what he wrote. All the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, the inspiration, and the brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. Only in the foundation of unyielding despair can the human soul safely build its habitation. What a depressing outlook. A world marked by turbulence, but also by futility. But then the psalmist goes further. He said it's a, a world in rebellion against God. They take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. In other words, behind the human conflict is the world's opposition to God and to his son. Or to put it differently, the fundamental problem in the world is not political or economic or even military, but spiritual. And it's not a modern problem. That spiritual or that spirit of rebellion has been the same throughout the centuries. And it came to its climax in the world's treatment of God's anointed son. Remember how the serpent said to Adam and Eve in Eden, go on, eat, you will not surely die. Defy what God tells you. At the Tower of Babel, let us build a tower and reach to the heavens. We don't need God, we can be our own gods. When Moses went up to Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, they said, let us make a golden calf. And in the days of the judges, we read that every man did what was right in his own eyes, a time of complete social chaos. And now Peter, quoting this very psalm, speaks of the world's representatives gathered in Jerusalem to do away with the Son of God. And they quote this psalm, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. We don't want this man to rule over us. And so the human race since the fall of Adam and we his successors have chosen to see God's gracious laws given for our good as restrictions on our freedom and we don't want them. We want to break those chains of God's authority. Such is the psalmist's picture of the scene on earth. But now we move from the turmoil on earth to the calm, if you like, of the scene in heaven, verses 4 to 9. And here we notice, I think, at least three aspects of the character of God. First of all, his sovereignty. That one enthroned in heaven laughs or scoffs. It's simply a pictorial way of saying it is laughable that human beings should set themselves against God. 
History is the outworking of God's divine purposes, despite our human rebellion. History is his story. And we can see that and trace it in the great story of redemption, as the, New Test- as the Old Testament tells us. You remember how God set in motion his rescue plan for the human race, and he first of all called a man, Abraham, from Ur of the Chaldees, a, a pagan farmer, if you like. And he called him aside to father a child from whom would come a family, and from that family a nation, and from that nation would come one in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Except it was impossible because Sarah was too old for childbearing. They were much too old. But you'll remember the question of the visitors who came, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that child was born, from whom came a family and a nation and ultimately a saviour. And you'll remember how their descendants sold their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt, and they thought they were done with him. Except when famine came, they ended up in Egypt, and now they meet their brother, prime minister in the land. And how does he explain those events? He said, you intended to harm me. But God meant it for good to accomplish what he is now happening, the saving of many lives. The whole nation was saved through those events of a coat of many colors. And now their further descendants, as they multiply in Egypt, they become slaves. And God calls Moses to lead them on an impossible trip to the Red Sea. But by faith, Moses led half a million men plus women and children to the very edge of the Red Sea, pursued by the Egyptians. And at the very last moment, God opened up their way to freedom as the chariots of Pharaoh stuck in the mud. And then we have centuries of prophecy that follow. People and events pointing forward. The Passover feast pointing to Christ, the true Passover lamb in Exodus. Or the little book of Ruth pointing forward to the true kinsman redeemer. Or the Psalms pointing forward to a greater king than David. Or Isaiah looking forward to that virgin who will conceive and bear a son who will be the prince of peace. Or Daniel pointing forward to that glorious Son of Man, which incidentally is the most popular title for Jesus in the New Testament. And the years of pointing forward came to their climax when a Jewish peasant girl was told that she would bear in her womb God's anointed son. Again, it was impossible. How can I bear a son since I am a virgin, she asked. You remember the answer of the angel with God, nothing is impossible. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. But now 33 years later, it seems as if the plan has stalled. It has come to nothing because that beloved son is hanging on a cross, dead and in seeming defeat. The Jewish and the Roman authorities think they are in control. But here are Peter's words, quoting this psalm. He said, he was handed over to you. By the determinate plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him, but God raised him. So the cross was not the end of God's plan. It was only the end of the beginning of God's plan for the world because it was followed by the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Christ to the Father's right hand. And that's what Psalm 2 is speaking about in verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then verse 8, I will make the nations your inheritance. 
And once again, God's plan seems foolish in the eyes of the world. Jesus commissions his disciples before he ascends to the Father's right hand and said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Impossible. They had no experience. They had no social status. They had no human resources. They had never stepped outside the land of Judah. And the might of the Roman Empire stood against them. And what was the outcome? Well, the outcome was that the empire collapsed. And the church grew and it kept growing and has been growing ever since until 20 centuries later the gospel has found a foothold in every corner of the globe. And at this present moment, secular statisticians tell us that the Christian church is growing faster than the human population. Let me just give you one example. When I was a student at Queen's, we heard that Mao Zedong had initiated his cultural revolution to wipe out the Christian church to eliminate missionaries, to put pastors in prison, to confiscate Bibles and close down the churches. There may have been around two million Christian believers in China at that time. Ten years later, it seemed the end of the church. Ten years later, Mao Zedong was dead. The cultural revolution came to nothing, and that two million had become at least 20 million in the underground church of China. And today, the church in China numbers at least 100 million Christians. Far, far more members there than members of the Communist Party and missionaries are now being sent from China to the rest of the world. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your inheritance. God is sovereign. But notice here too that we see God's justice. And here again there's language that perhaps we we bristle at it a little bit. We, we find it hard to go. You will dash him to pieces like pottery. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Here the psalmist is pointing to a day when men will not stand in judgment of God, but each of us will stand and give account to him. What on earth does the psalmist mean by God's Wrath. Well, let's say what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean bad temper. That's how we think of somebody who's filled with wrath. But God's wrath is his settled opposition to all that is evil, all that destroys his world and the people that he loves. There are times in our lives when it's right to feel a righteous anger, and indeed not to do so would be wrong. The opposite of love is not anger, but indifference. God's wrath, God's anger at evil flows from his love. Do you not feel a righteous anger when you view on your television screens the brutality towards the Ukrainian people, women raped and executed in front of their families? Would you not feel that if a child that you loved was somehow abused? Would you not feel an intense, deep anger? The more we love somebody, the more we feel anger at anything that hurts them. And if you and I as sinful people feel that, how much more a holy and a loving God? And the New Testament tells us that God has revealed his wrath and will yet reveal his wrath. How has he revealed it already? Well, first of all, Paul tells us in the state of our society. Why is the world in such a mess? Well, we read in Romans chapter 1 that God handed them over to their own ways. The world that we see today is what happens when God lets us have our own way. We make a complete mess of it. 
But also God will reveal his wrath on that coming day of judgment when evil and sin will get its comeuppance. The whole world, says Paul, will be held accountable to God. And what will the verdict on that day be of you and me? Well, Paul tells us there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand under his judgment. And truly you and I would be without any hope at all, but for the fact that God's wrath has already been revealed in another place. And that was on the cross. The reason God sent a son to the world was so that you and I would not have to reap the fruit of our sinful rebellion. Paul uses a word that we don't use nowadays in our, our common speech, the word propitiation, to explain what was going on on the cross. It means to turn away wrath or to absorb it. During the Middle Ages, uh, architects built these huge cathedrals all over Europe, Notre Dame and Chartres and others, some of them 100 and almost 150 feet up into the air. And these things took over a century to build. But in one moment, a lightning strike could bring them down and the work of century was gone. That is until a man called Benjamin Franklin invented what we call the lightning conductor, a piece of metal rod up in that spire that when the lightning struck with all its destructive force, it was diverted away from the cathedral and absorbed into the ground so that the cathedral was not harmed. Well, that's a picture of what the Bible means when God propitiated his wrath. In Christ, if you like, his wrath on sin was diverted away, was absorbed so that you and I would not have to absorb it. That is the good news of the gospel. Notice how the psalmist puts it here, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is no place of refuge from God. There's only refuge in him. The cross is where God's enemies can become his friends, where they lay down their arms of rebellion, where those who are his enemies are reconciled adopted into his family as his beloved children. Those who were heirs of judgment become heirs of eternal life. Citizens of the kingdom of darkness become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we see in the psalm something of God's sovereignty. But God's righteous wrath that flows from his love. And that was shown supremely on the cross where that wrath was absorbed in Christ. So what should be our rightful response, verses 10 to 12? Well, in any conflict, people need to take sides. There is no place for neutrality. And God's judgment will be based on one thing and one thing only. The response that you and I have made to the Son, whom he sent to be our Savior. King Pharaoh chose the wrong side of history when he refused to let God's people go. King Saul chose the wrong side of history when he sought to kill God's anointed King David. Pilate chose the wrong side of history when he handed Jesus over to be crucified. They not only chose the wrong side of history, but the wrong side of eternity. The choices we make about God's Son determine our eternity. And so notice how the psalm ends. The psalmist says, therefore, you kings, be wise. 
or we might use the modern term to wise up, think, understand, be warned. There is no doubt or be in no doubt about why the world is the way it is. And be in no doubt that God is sovereign. And despite our human rebellion, he is advancing his purposes and will do so until they are complete. And be in no doubt that there will be a day of reckoning when we will all give account to him. So here's a call to serious thinking. But secondly, it's a call to salvation. God has provided a refuge, a safe place. How blessed are those who find their refuge in him. And so he's saying, don't run from him. Because there's no way of escape if we do. Run to him. Our refuge is found in him and in his beloved son. And then in turn, it's a call to submission and service. Again, using picture language, he says, kiss the son, verse 12. If you like, in the ancient world, a subject would kiss the hand of a sovereign in an act of subservience and honor. And so as we bow the knee to God's son, we bow to him as our Lord and master and say like Paul, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you with my life? How can I be part of your saving purposes in the world for others? And then he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What should our response be this morning to God's son? Well, let me use the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, in light of God's mercies, present your whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your logical or your reasonable worship. May God enable each one of us to choose sides decisively and then offer our whole selves in his service. Let's take a moment to pray and we sing our last hymn. Let's pray. Father, we realize that we're part of a very foolish, confused human race. And we are reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, help us to know that with deep conviction as we leave church today. And then, Lord, help us to act accordingly. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.